Let's, uh, let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word this morning, we want to thank you for the bright and wonderful hope that we have in our children. Thank you so much for giving us these small people. And Lord, we do pray that as they go through their lives, they will come to know you as their Lord and Savior and serve you. And Lord, we also pray that um, you would soften our hearts in the right places today to receive your word and to make it part of our lives going forward. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our principal text this morning comes from the book of Ephesians 4 verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, please could you turn there now. As we all know, thanks to the many, many adverts on TV, Christmas is a wonderful time of the year. We look forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus, embracing relatives and opening presents, or perhaps opening relatives and embracing presents in some cases. But irrespective of which order you choose to do those things, there is still some very ordinary stuff going on at this time, like walking. There can be a lot of walking at Christmas. It's also a good time to think about stuff like that. In addition to its very excellent wonderfulness, Christmas also brings us to a moment where we might usefully take stock of what we have done up to the end of one year and how we might handle the new one. Now, you might wonder where I'm going with this because walking, well, it's really not that exciting, is it? It's a bit ho-hum for millennials and uh, meh if you're otherwise inclined. You don't need to think about it much, just move in the general direction of over there. But perhaps you need to take it more seriously because random use of the legs can have very serious consequences as you might see in a bit. And since that is so, I want to use the next few minutes to see what Scripture has to say about the act of walking. And perhaps along the way, I can get you to do a festive conga line in the aisle. But then I forgot, you know, we're Baptists, we don't do that stuff. <laughs> so let's look at Ephesians 4 verse 1, and I'm going to read on a little bit from there so we keep the sense of the text. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. This word beseech that we find here in verse 1 is where our hiking trail begins. It's really old school English, but it's a good strong word that goes well beyond merely asking somebody to do something. And to illustrate that strength, here are some of the different ways the original Greek word is translated in some different versions of the Bible. They use terms like imploring or pleading, calling upon, begging or exhorting. The original Greek word is parakaleo, and that has the idea of coming alongside somebody to encourage, to urge them to take some action, especially an ethical course of action. So we must understand that Paul isn't vaguely suggesting something here. Perhaps you might like to. 
But it's, it's like he's come alongside us in an intimate manner. You can almost imagine him coming next to you and taking your arms side by side and, and speaking to you, speaking strongly and encouragingly. Come on, come on, do this. It's important. Well, I guess many of us have seen the TV show Mythbusters, but one of the episodes investigated the science behind why birds such as geese fly in a V formation. And it turns out that the turbulence from the, the lead bird's wings creates extra lift for the ones behind, so that when they fly like this in a group, they can fly much further and much faster than just one bird would be able to do alone. But those geese do something else. They don't just fly silently, do they? They honk at each other as they go. And that's not because they're critics, but because they're encouragers. Those in the rear, they sound off, they paracaleo to exhort those up front to stay on course and maintain that speed. Isn't that a great example of what the word means? And of course there's a consequent question. It isn't really part of a sermon, but I have to ask it. Is there someone flying along next to you today who could use some encouraging honks? But wait, as the adverts say, there is more. It seems that this word was very commonly used by Greek authors in the context of leaders who were exhorting troops who were about to go into battle. It is the word for a rallying call. It is the word used of the speeches of leaders and soldiers who urge each, other's each other on. It is the word used to send fearful and hesitant soldiers and sailors courageously into battle. So it seems very appropriate for Paul to use it for us Christians who day by day who will inevitably face a battle with the world, their flesh, and Satan. So I hope by now you've got some feeling of the word, how Paul has drawn alongside us to administer some spine-straightening advice. But before I get to the matter of your spine, there's some really interesting stuff. It turns out this, this isn't everything that Paracaleo has to offer us, or to be very specific, it's near relatives. In John's Gospel, chapter 14, we read this, and it's, it's Jesus speaking. I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So note the word helper here, referring to the Holy Spirit. It turns out that this description of his work has a direct link to what we're talking about today because it is the Greek word parakletos. And there's no mistake that the two kind of sound the same because parakaleo is the verb root of parakletos. And this connection is fantastic. It's not just something scholarly because it adds another dimension to what we're reading about in Ephesians. You see, when we accept Christ as Savior and our relationship with God is therefore restored, it is just, it's not just another tick in the box for God. He doesn't go and say, oh, yeah, that makes 57 new Christians by 11 a.m. today. Let's move on to the next one. No, he never does that. His Holy Spirit stays right there with us to help us from that moment on and forever. Forever. He never leaves us. 
When we join what we have learned about the word beseech in Ephesians to this other bit in John that speaks of the Holy Spirit as helper, it illuminates God's very comprehensive plan to help every Christian. Paul wants to parakaleo, to urge and exhort us from the outside. And that's not a work that's specific to Paul. He's not the important thing here. The important thing is that's what Scripture does for us. It, it exhorts us from the outside. While the Holy Spirit is the parakletos, the helper and strengthener on the inside. Isn't that fantastic? Outside and inside? But wait, there is still more. In 1 John 2 we read, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, can anyone guess what the Greek word for advocate is? Anyone? Parakletos. Hmm? It's parakletos again. And it seems that this word has a great background in Greek law. The parakletos was the prisoner's friend who was allowed to come and, and speak for them. The advocate and counsel for the defense. The one who bore witness to their friend's character when they most needed it and when others wished to condemn them. Does that remind you of something? When we describe the glorified Christ as our parakletos, we understand that in that role he was always there in heaven to speak for us before God the Father when we sin. Do you sometimes feel that you're alone in your struggles with sin or some other aspect of your life? Because what we've just learned definitely proves that we are never alone. God has, as always, provided so richly for us. We have his Bible to paracleo, to urge us in our hand. He's parakletos, the Holy Spirit, within us to help us every day. And his parakletos, Jesus in heaven, to advocate for us. And the Father always gives us his ear when we call. That's complete and perfect help from all angles and for every situation. And it comes from the ultimate of all helpers. So, when things get tough, and they will, remember Parakaleo and Parakletos, those gracious gifts of God's help. And remember those gifts too when times are good, and give thanks for them because they are precious and undeserved. Okay, let's look further into our verse in Ephesians. What does Paul actually parakaleo us to do? He urges and beseeches us to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, since it might be difficult for you to visualize what a worthy walk actually looks like, I thought it would be helpful at this point to watch a short instructional video. <laughs>
morning. I'm sorry to have kept you waiting, but I'm afraid my, uh, my walk has become rather sillier recently, and so it takes me rather long. Now then, uh, what was it again? Well, sir, I, I have a, a silly walk, and I'd like to obtain a government grant to help me develop it. I see. Uh, may I see your silly walk? Yes, certainly, yes. <clears throat> I think that's probably quite enough of that. <laughs> At the very least, Mr. Cleese has helped us to see that when Paul is speaking about walking, he is not suggesting that some particular motion of the legs is possible or necessary for proper spirituality. And I would say that would be a blessing for the knees. Anyway, the Greek word, I love Greek, used for walk is peripateo, and literally means to walk around. But its usual use in the New Testament relates to the daily conduct of one's life or how you might order your behavior or in what ways you might pass your life. So when we read walk in this text, it really just means your style of life rather than the usual act of locomotion. As a Christian, then, the word walk both challenges us to consider what we do and also where that doing will take us. So let's explore those ideas. When you stop to think about it, walking is way more complicated than just moving. And these complications do relate very directly to this idea of walking as a lifestyle. Firstly, walking usually has a purpose. We don't generally wander lonely as a cloud when we walk. Most often it is with a very specific reason in mind, some goal or another. And achieving that goal will require a number of deliberate actions to take place. Well, perhaps it's very obvious, but one must first start to have any hope of achieving a goal. I once saw a poster that said, if I could just start, I'd be unstoppable. And how true is that? Then along the way, there's the need to check for progress. How far have I come? Have I come in the right direction? Are there any obstacles in the way that I can see that I can plan for now? Am I moving at the right speed? These are some questions we should ask at our personal checkpoints. Walking also requires perseverance because we will find that there are inevitably hills along the way or the roads may be long, much longer than we ever thought or hoped. So perhaps we might need to consider a period of training before we begin to walk towards any particular goal. So on analysis... Purposeful walking is really quite complicated, isn't it? It draws together all that we are as humans. It requires our physical self, nerves, muscles, and sinews, and so on, to actually move, plus the action of the mind and the decision to start, the heart and the desire to continue, and the will and the determination to arrive. When we look at walking in this way, it is clear that it is actually a very descriptive word for what we need to do to be effective Christians. The lesson here is that our Christian walk should not be taken lightly. It's clearly not as easy and automatic as we might have hoped. No, we must be deliberate. We must invest time. We must invest time in praying for guidance. We must invest time thinking. What are our spiritual goals? How are we doing in achieving them? Do we need help? to be where we need to be. 
We must invest time in regular training, doing heavy lifting in Scripture and prayer. Unless we have engaged our whole selves in all these things, drawing together muscles, mind, will, and spirit, we will fail. Living on autopilot will never allow us to win the race. Aren't these grand words? They are parakaleo. I am exhorting and encouraging you for the battle. But it's not all bubbles and champagne, is it? The harsh reality is that we will slip and stumble and fall and lose our way multiple times in our walk with the Lord. But that's the point. We walk with the Lord. Parakletos, remember, our helper and advocate are always with us. So we must never lose hope because each step is new. If you stumbled on the last step, well, watch where you're going and lift your foot higher the next time. Did you slip in some mud and almost fall? Well, aim for better ground. But in all cases, remember that there is a helping hand right there when you need it. Just reach out. And it's there. In our daily walk with God, every single solitary step has the potential to be better than the last one, providing that we have aimed before we fire that foot or word or thought. Those feet and those words and thoughts can take us so far. And the question is in what direction? We need to be careful. Small steps steadily add up. I'm reminded that a few years ago, a friend of mine took up a challenge to do a million steps, which seems like a very large number. And when I said to her that I thought it would take a while, she surprised me by saying that it had only taken three months of normal activity to get there. Three months! Well, that makes me think that's a challenge worth considering. If you took a million definite and deliberate steps forward in your Christian walk, how would they add up? And where would you be? A long way from where you are now, that's for sure. These pictures of sustained effort, deliberate decision, heartfelt desire and determined will are all great examples of how we practically ought to walk out our sanctification as a way of life. We will need to make that decision to start walking. And that may well happen at a time when we don't know where we're going. But that first step is important. That's enough for God to work with. We need to keep going, although it'll be hard and we might want to give up. But the reward at the end is definitely worth it. One thing is for sure, staying still might be very, very easy and very, very attractive. But if we never move, how will anyone ever know whether we are alive or dead? All of us walk in two spaces, one personal and one public. Now we've obviously spent a lot of time talking about the personal stuff, but there's another part that has a public face. In the balance of this verse, we are beseeched to walk how? Worthy of our calling. What is that all about? 
What we read today as worthy is the Greek word axios, which means having the weight of another, weighing as much as, of like value. Literally bringing up the other side of the scales. What Paul is saying, that our calling and our conduct ought to be in balance, like in a pair of scales. So it's all very well to read, but how do we, how do we actually practically figure out how to do that? I'd say to start with, we need to understand what is the calling that we need to balance with. How much weight do we need to find? Well, hopefully Paul has spent the last three chapters telling us about that, so I've just picked a few verses to remind us of the general tone. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. So here's the, some of the weight that we need to pick up. We've been made holy and blameless from where we were. We've been adopted as sons by Jesus. Then chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound, to abound to us in all wisdom and prudence. So we have received redemption, forgiveness, and an abundance of grace. Chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who walks all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Once again, recipients of God's inheritance. God's inheritance, not something here on earth that's going to disappear and wear out. God's inheritance, predestined, chosen before for God's purposes so that he might be properly praised and glorified. So that's just from chapter 1. And it makes it very clear that we have a most wonderful and weighty calling. You might not like that word weighty very much because it can give the impression that balancing the scales is going to be a very difficult thing. Maybe even impossible. And it also, if you read it in one way, it implies that salvation is perhaps something that we could earn by earnestly doing good works. And we know that that's not true. The thing is that when we consider that all God is and all he has done for us, there isn't really a better word. In fact, any word we have in any language is lacking because for this particular task, what God does for us is immeasurable. Truly then, if we did have to make the balance on our own, we just couldn't do it. But here we find a miracle and a blessing because... God's involvement in our lives somehow makes him present on both sides of the scale. It isn't just up to us. On one side, as we've read, God has sovereignly called and saved us and thereby created this weighty moral and spiritual debt. But at the same time, on the other side of the scales, on our side, he has also become man as Jesus, who with the help of the Holy Spirit lifts and carries that burden so the scales are in balance. How can that be? 
We are made worthy of our calling not by our own efforts because they could never be enough, but only by the blood of Jesus. But I don't want anyone to mistake that means we have nothing to do personally going forward. God has made it possible for us to balance, but we do still have to contribute our mustard seed. How do we do that? Well, we start to walk according to His rules. We deliberately put one foot in front of the other in obedience to Him rather than our own flesh. And we have to do that every day of our lives. As we do so, we must know that we are watched. While the only truly important observer God constitutes an audience of one, there are obviously lots and lots of other people with an iron of us on us. How will they see us amongst a crowd? Well, any hunter will tell you that movement is the thing that attracts the eye. You can scan the bush all you like and see nothing, but with just one little twitch of an ear, suddenly you will see that animal. It will just pop into focus. And being a Christian is like that. It's so tempting to blend into our surroundings and become one of the crowd, to move and be like them, so we just don't stand out. But a worthy walk, a worthy walk will always give us away. We all laughed at John Cleese earlier because his actions seemed so extreme. But the difference between saved and unsaved is just as extraordinary. We aren't talking about shades of gray here, but light and dark, day and night. From the spiritual perspective, Christians are like bright little suns running around in a sea of absolute blackness. So it's impossible that these lights can be hidden or put out because the contrast is so great. And the same ought to be true of our physical presence in the world. It might be uncomfortable, but no matter what the circumstance, Christians ought always to walk in a way that honors their calling, a calling that was made by holy and mighty God, the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of everything everywhere, but also the one who made himself a man, the one who came as a child at Christmas to die for our sake. And so for us to respond in any other way just can't be enough. So I challenge you, how will you walk this Christmas? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we need to recognize and thank you for the amazing way that you support us. For the personal responsibility that you've taken for each and every one of us. You haven't merely delegated our, our daily lives to some junior angel, but Jesus and the Holy Spirit remain with us. That's just amazing, Lord. 
Father, I pray that with these thoughts in mind, we would be moved to respond in a proper way. That our walk would reflect the values of our custodian. And that we would do so for your glory and your honor. Help us to be lights in the darkness. Help us to show the world what a proper relationship with you looks like. And Lord, let us do so at this time and in every day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.